0: In this episode is sponsored by Brooklyn Candle Studio. If you are like me and you love candles throughout your home just to give an extra sense of luxury and serenity and make me think that I'm at the spa when I'm not, um, then you're gonna love this company. Brooklyn Candle Studio is female owned and was founded by Tamara Main in 2013. Everything is made in Brooklyn, and everything has a very luxurious feel to it. Um, The candles are 100% soy wax, plant-based and renewable. All the products are free from phthalates, parabens, sulfates, petroleum, and dyes, And all of the vessels that they come in can be reused and repurposed because they're so beautiful. Like you can just put Q-tips and leave it in your bathroom and it'll just be a nice addition to that. So if you want to check them out, please head on over to brooklyncandlestudio.com and use my code MOTHERHOOD20 to save. You're listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad that you're here, as always. My guest this week is Melanie Ho. She's a speaker, multimedia creator, and organizational consultant who speaks on a variety of topics, including women in leadership, diversity, equity and inclusion, the future of education, and the use of creativity and the arts in business. In her new book, Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equity and What Organizations Are Up Against, Melanie excavates the concept of leaning in and the challenges that women face in the workplace. So in this episode, Melanie is providing new insights about why gender gaps are so hard to close despite our best intentions. So of course, we're going to get into unconscious bias, where that comes from, but also how to move forward and move beyond that. Um, Also, we talk about how to think differently about what both individuals and organizations must do to ensure that all employees thrive. So whether you are in the workforce or not, I think this is a very valuable episode for a greater understanding of self and others and how we all exist in the world and how that has evolved over time and what we need to do, not only for ourselves, but for future generations, our children, um, and the children that we love in our lives to make sure that it gets better for everyone and that we progress as a society, as a culture. So thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, please share it out. And of course, if you haven't already, please leave us a review and please enjoy this episode with Melanie Ho. Well, hello, Melanie. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad
1: that you're here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation.
0: Yeah, I think this topic is very important because there are, like I said earlier, a lot of working mothers out there tuning into this show. So before we get into your new book and everything that you have researched and worked towards, um, let's let's give the listener kind of some background about you. What were the key events in your life that led you to doing this type of work, to creating this book um, and bringing that
1: message to the world? Oh, gosh, there are so many, you know, someone once told me that when it comes to big career transitions and decisions, or or basically any big (laughs) decision or transition, that the fruit ripens slowly, and then it drops quickly. And I think that's what it was like for me. I quit my job during the pandemic. I was one of those people that was part of the great resignation. I'll admit freely, I did not have a plan at the time. I was a corporate executive. I was a senior vice president at a, a large education technology and consulting firm. And so I actually felt like I couldn't say that I didn't have a plan. So I would just kind of make up all kinds of plans. But the truth was that all I knew was that I wanted to finish this book. And that Beyond Leaning In had been a labor of love for, in some ways, um, you know, I could say it had been three years. I could say it had been 10 years. I could say it had been a lifetime. I remember in high school, I got really obsessed with the women's suffrage movement and just how just... Unbelievable, it seemed to me, that it wasn't until 1920 that women got the right to vote. And I remember in college being really involved with a women's philanthropic group and also being really interested in the power of novels and literature and how different forms of art can promote social change. I actually designed my own major at UCLA along those lines to look at that. Um, I got my PhD in English. I wrote a dissertation called Useful Fiction that was all about really how novels can be a kind of self-help and a kind of education. And then after that, I went to the corporate world. And there was just a series of events (laughs) where I started to see how women were treated differently than men, how we were judged by different standards, how we were told to lean in. And yet when we did lean in, We were penalized for it or not rewarded at the same rate. And it felt like this phrase, lean in, raise your hand, be more confident. Like, I'm all about that message. I think it's really important and empowering. But it's just one slice of the pie. And just time after time, I saw women being told that we weren't doing enough when I think we were doing too much. And just all of this just kept building. Um, I was writing the book on the side. You know, here and there, stealing every moment I could. And then when the pandemic finally hit, it just felt like it was time. And so the book went from 80% done um, to finally done and uh, went out into the world last year.
0: Wow. What did that feel like when you finally finished the manuscript and, you know, was done, this labor of love, all of this passion, this research, this hard work, and these stolen moments of time when it was actually done? And, you know, you, know, you knew you had to go through the editing and all of that, but like when it was done... What did that feel like in your body? Like you—you knew that
1: this was going to be helping women. Just, I, I mean, so many emotions at the same time, right? On, on the one hand, terrifying that this was going to go out in the world, and it—it it, it felt so vulnerable, right? With with other people like it, um, were the stories I was just telling—I had interviewed probably hundreds of women. I had done you know copious amounts of research, and yet at the same time, there was a part of me that thought, well, what if the story I'm telling doesn't seem real to other women you know what if it I just worked at a weird place and it just happened to be that the other woman I talked to all worked to a weird place that we can talk ourselves out of something and so I was terrified but I was also exhilarated and excited and um, it, it, it just it felt right you asked what it felt like in my body and I think in my body it felt like um, there was something just true that needed to happen at that moment
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. So let's get into the book. The book is called Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equity and What Organizations Are Up Against. Now, I think, you know, we think that we have come a long way and everything is more equal now and there is a sense of equity, but you argue that that's not the case. So can you talk about where we stand now in the modern workforce and what what has happened and what still needs
1: to be done? You know, I think there's this misperception that it's all about representation, that as long as there are the sheer numbers of women in the workforce or in senior positions then things are equal. And the truth is that representation is only the first step that When I talk to women, even at women at organizations where you've got a female CEO and some female vice presidents in there, even then that doesn't change the day-to-day lived experience of all the women in the organizations. And that doesn't mean, you know, I I worry sometimes when I say that because I think automatically people will say, oh, that's because women are chatty. That's because women aren't good leaders. No, that's not what I'm saying at all, right? It's because the day-to-day experience, we have so many what I call mental autocompletes out there with um, unconscious biases, the ways that women are treated, right? So for example, you can walk into an organization and be introduced to two colleagues. And what you'll hear might be something like, hey, Chad is really great with data. And Haley's you know, the glue of the office and she's got an infectious smile. And it could be that Haley is actually the person who's better at data and Chad and Haley have the same job. But we have these just I call them mental autocompletes that lead us to think of and describe women a certain way and men a certain way. And all of us have them, both women and men. And so even at workplaces, you could have a female CEO at that company and yet that's still going on.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. This unconscious bias that we all are subject to. Why do you think that that is still so deeply rooted? Is it because we're just not aware that we're operating on these, these and using these autocompletes? Or is it something more? Is it is it systemic? Really, at this point,
1: it is absolutely systemic. I mean, I think of it in terms of I use the phrase mental autocomplete partly because we have such a bias against the word unconscious bias, right? Whenever people hear the word unconscious bias, there's almost this negative reaction in our bodies because we think, oh, I don't want to be biased. I'm not a bad person. Um, So, autocomplete to me just Reminds us that it's natural. Uh, I I came up with the phrase when the iPhone rolled out its autocomplete emojis, right? You put in happy and the happy face comes up and all of that. And I noticed that when you typed in CEO or doctor, male emojis came up no matter what. Now the iPhone eventually figured that out and they reprogrammed it. And it's a lot easier to reprogram an iPhone than it is a human being because we're getting these messages from childhood, right? What we see on TV, when you see the male characters who are saving the world and the female characters who are the dependable sidekick, even things like a friend was telling me the other day, she was watching her... Her son on the playground, and he was playing. He was sort of too young to be with the older kids, and the older kids, I think, it was some sort of class. And um, the kids were playing tennis. And after they were done, the coach told the kids to clean up the balls that were, you know, all over the place. And the girls dutifully picked up the balls and cleaned up. And the boys goofed off with the coach. At the end of that, all of them got points for helping clean up, and what my friend said was most surprising to her was that the parents all watching it were just kind of laughing, right, that boys will be boys. Now, a lot of people will say to me, you know, we're all more woke now, so this can't still be happening. Now, I'm going to guess these are Gen Z students with probably millennial parents, parents who are very aware of these kinds of biases. And yet it's so wired that it happens anyway. And so to me, that's the thing that we've got to really pay attention to, otherwise it will just continue, right? Because that happens as their kids and then we get into the workplace And we have the women doing the disproportionate office housekeeping tasks, taking the notes at the meeting, um, doing extra mentoring, doing extra event planning, making sure all the details are taken care of, in addition to whatever jobs that the men are doing as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is why I'm so glad that I have you on the show because again, you know, most of the people tuning in are working, but also we're mothers, you know, we're mothers to daughters, we're mothers to sons. And so it's like, we're nipping this in the bud or at least bringing in the awareness so that this doesn't continue to perpetuate. So this is, this is a meta moment for me um, and everyone tuning in. So we, we understand, you know, consciously what's going on. Um, It's hard to, to make a shift, but what can, companies do because I know you've done a ton of education for companies what can they start to do that's actually meaningful that's actually going to make a positive change for a young woman working in their office who's not a CEO but you know maybe doesn't feel
1: like her voice can be heard the first thing i try to talk to companies about is the importance of understanding how the problem is systemic as you mentioned earlier that it, there's not just one magic bullet. You can't just give all the women confidence training and that won't solve the problem. We need to really look at all the systemic factors. So to give you an example, we can, we can drop it in the show notes if that's okay. There's a, a, a comic I drew called The Cupcake Trap. And it's based on the scene from my book and I'll, I'll try to describe it. Um, so in this comic, on the left side, we see a promotion memo. And the promotion memo is congratulating two staff, Mike and Mara, for being promoted to the same position of analytics manager. But Mike is recognized for bringing in $5 $5 million in revenues. And Mara, it says, you know, congratulations for Mara. She has a great work ethic and baking skills. And we're all grateful for her brownies. You know, maybe we've gained some pounds from them. And it's supposed to be a joke. It's supposed to be like, look, we know Mara. But of course, this is highly gendered language, and it's not recognizing Mara for the types of contributions to the bottom line that Mike is providing. At the bottom of the memo, I draw a guy kind of shrugging, and he says, what's the big deal? They both got promoted. And that's so often the response, right? We We hear something like that. But The phrase microaggression is often used in diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. And I think that the problem with that phrase is that people think, okay, maybe that's not good, but it's a microaggression. It's micro. Why does it matter?
0: This episode is sponsored by Lunia. Lunia's mission is to elevate rest ever since it was founded in 2014 by Los Angeles native Ashley Merrill. Now, if that name rings a bell, there's a good reason because she has been on the show not once, but twice. The most recent episode, episode 245. Now we talk all about motherhood and managing stress and running a business, but we also talk about her beautiful brand known for pioneering washable silk. They have since expanded into other signature fabrics like organic Pima and cozy cotton silk. Everything LUNYA makes is designed to tangibly improve rest with products as functional as they are beautiful. Lunia maintains a painstaking attention to detail, quality, and construction because they see their pieces as the anti-old t-shirt. They are the uniform for those who share their belief that resting is the most important time of the day. So if you would like to get some Lunia apparel of your own, please use my code UNSTRESS20 to save at lunia.co. That's L U N Y A.co.
1: So in the rest of the comic, I drew some things to show why it does matter. Um, First, I pictured two employees talking. And what I say when I discuss this comic is that this could be two weeks later. This could be a year later. One of them says, I'm looking for project help. What do you know about Mike or Mara? And his colleague replies to him, I don't know much about Mike. Or sorry, I don't know much about Mara. I heard Mike is great. And below that, I drew a... um, you know, people remember Mike for the, and I, I drew a big money bag, <laughs> and people remember Mara for the cupcakes, and I drew a cupcake. And just as a way to illustrate, like that, that imagery, that sense of who these people are, it just seems like a small moment, but there are these, I almost titled my book at one point, A Thousand Everyday Cuts, because there are just these thousands of small moments that accumulate and add up so that Mike is perceived a certain way and Mara is perceived a certain way. And even though she's getting promoted, there are still ways that she's gonna be overlooked for opportunities and for development and for recognition because of these autocompletes we have in our heads. And what I really try to do in workshops is say to folks, okay, let's look at this comic um, I actually have people draw, which is really fun after that. Anyone I think can draw. And drawing is such a great way to unlock our imaginations and kind of let down our guards and defenses. But I'll ask folks, let's go through and come up with every single intervention point to keep this from happening. And like, this is just one memo, but like, what are all the things that go into it? It's like, oh, okay. Someone sent that memo. Hit send, like literally. Okay, maybe that person should have a bias check, like process like a checklist someone else looking at it with a checklist like there there could be checks there okay that person got the paragraphs probably from mike and mara's managers um okay maybe they need a template that would be helpful um okay well maybe mike's manager wrote the paragraph based on mike brought in five million dollars yesterday and mara baked cupcakes yesterday like we all have recency bias Um, So, okay, maybe we need to help managers know how to keep track of employees' accomplishments across a given year and have a system for doing that. Okay. Well, there's another problem here, which is maybe Mara's always baking the cupcakes because they always ask her to, or even if they don't ask her to, she just knows that it's a helpful way of building community and no one else will do it. So maybe then we need to even out the responsibility of who helps with that kind of, um, community building. Okay. Well maybe another problem is that women aren't even recognized for community building. Okay. Maybe we need to bake that into performance evaluations. Um, Oh, but there's also this problem that these two employees who are talking later, all they know about Mike and Mara is because of the memo. Oh, well, maybe we need different ways of, for managers to be aware of the skills of different employees. We could have a database for that. And like, I mean, I could keep on going and going and going. We take this one incident and there's just so many points of intervention. And if we start to think about it as a system, and I try to make it fun with, with drawing, but there are a lot of ways to do this. We start to think of it as a system and realize all the points of inver- intervention, that's the way. To really get to the problem.
0: Yeah, so beautifully said because I think I could totally picture it, even just with this simple comic strip, of how truly complex and, and, just massive this this undertaking is. But I feel like if we don't do the work, if we don't talk about it, if you don't write books like this, then it's just gonna continue on. I mean, that's I think the recurring theme here is when you take the time to really look at these inflection points and how's you know, one little decision, how that truly can cause an avalanche in someone's career. And then, you know, 10 years down the line, Mark's up here, Mara's down here. And no and no one can question why. There's no there's no one incident of why that would happen. I mean, I find that that's so fascinating. And and like getting back to the book, I feel like you've really done a great job of unpacking and peeling back all of these layers. What what would you say is the number one reason that this exists? Or is it is it down to these these
1: thousand cuts? Hmm. Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think I'll, I'll give maybe two answers to it. So I think part of the reason it exists or one of the main reasons it, it exists are those autocompletes that it's just so ingrained um, that we don't even notice it. But the reason that it persists and keeps going is what I call organizational impatience or sometimes I call it fix-it culture or like the whack-a-mole problem that employers um, – you know especially i think here in the us where everything is about urgency and everything's about like what's the fast solution what's the quickest solution employers want that magic bullet they want they don't want to hear that the situation is complex they don't want to try to figure out every point of inter, inter, intervention they want like one training one thing where they can check the box and then the problem is solved and for a lot of employers that was lean in because the idea was okay lean in we can put the put the um the onus on the woman to solve things um or maybe it's an unconscious bias training or maybe it's one one quick policy change but it's this sort of like unwillingness to look holistically at problems so i'm often asked this question if there's one thing that i want organizations to know and i actually think that the biggest problem that we need to fix uh, many employers is organizational impatience. And that's this idea that a problem has to be killed as quickly as possible. you know, we, we've got to like check the box. And sometimes that we see that in just how people tackle diversity, equity and inclusion in general, right? An organization will have an unconscious bias training or a microaggressions training or, or a help women lean in training and then call it a day rather than looking at the systemic and cultural factors. Sometimes we see it in things like, for example, hiring. In my, In my book, there's an example where we see a, a bunch of leaders who are making the wrong hire and they know they're making the wrong hire or they, they know that it's not the best hire, but it's actually the quickest one, right? They're afraid to leave a vacancy open too long because that's too complicated for them to figure out. They leave it open too long. They have to figure out the interim, blah, 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 blah. And so they bring in the person who's actually not the right person, but who can be like in the seat right away. And often I'll, I'll actually hear from, folks who have read my book and they'll say to me like, oh, that's exactly the problem that we just faced at our organization. Um, We wanted to hire someone with maybe a more diverse background in some way, you know, who brings different experiences to the table. And yet there was somebody else who was like day one ready. I hate that phrase. And uh, they required no training. And maybe they weren't going to be as good in the job long term. Maybe they had like, less potential for promotion later on. Um, we couldn't necessarily see them advancing in the same way. But there's this like, we need to have someone who can hit the ground running tomorrow. And so I think that's just one example. But there are so many where people look for the, the faster solution rather than the right one.
0: Yeah, I think again I think even having this conversation is planting a seed so that someone listening to this if they are in a management position if they are an HR specialist like it's it's coming home and it's like okay well this I haven't even thought about this let's maybe I'll bring this up in the next meeting because I think people are hungry for this type of knowledge for this type of awareness um they just don't have the vocabulary or they just haven't heard it from someone like you who's done hundreds of hours of research on this very specific topic.
1: I think that's got to come from the top, right? Uh, Because all of the incentives are misaligned. We, We often have HR folks, for example, and they're incentivized. Recruiters are incentivized based on time to fill a position. Uh, maybe we need to incentivize recruiters on a variety of metrics. It could be time to fill a position. Plus, now this is this gets complicated because what if the recruiter is not there, right? But ideally, you look at not just time to fill a position, but success of the person in the position a year from now, two years from now. Um, you know, I think so many organizations... Look at quarterly earnings, and obviously there are financial reasons, Wall Street, et cetera, for doing that. Um, but we've we've got to get boards, for example, to start saying, and, and leadership from the top to start saying to line managers, "Hey, you know, um, maybe it's okay. This is going to sound sacrilegious to a lot of organizations. Like, let's grow maybe ten percent slower than we would have. Like, still grow." <laughs> But what if we grow a little bit slower and we actually take the time to do things right? Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that there is a change happening, albeit a slow one, moving more into the divine feminine and and being more reflective and being more communal in how we solve problems in the workplace. So that, to me, is encouraging. And to have books like yours out to continue that process and to make it more more normal, you know, you're normalizing it, which I think is so important. Why do you think your approach to finally closing the gender gap and and changing the culture in the modern workplace, why do you think that that's hitting home and resonating with so many people right now in history?
1: Yeah, you know, we often hear like the phrase smash the patriarchy. I have a lot of t-shirts that say smash the patriarchy. And like, what does patriarchy mean? And part of patriarchy, I think, is, um, this very masculine culture that is about killing the problem as quickly as possible and like growth in almost an aggressive way. And like, I talked to a lot of women who have ended up starting their own companies. And for many of them, the reason is to, to try to work against that as much as possible. There's this great book uh, I read. It's called four days to change. It's, um, by these two men who, who run a company that's about helping white men learn to be better partners for diversity. And it's it's actually, it's really interesting. They go through and they they have these retreats with men to just talk about what it means to be a white man. And, and like, that sounds horrifying at first, right? But like you actually, um, when I first heard it, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> um, but I read it and it's really interesting because the the men actually are forced to think about what does it mean to be a white man in America. And at first, they can't even identify what that means culturally, right? Like, you know, is that like football? Is that beer? But then when they get deeper into it, they realize there are these things that they associate with what it means to be a man. And it is, it's like killing the problem. It's like act instead of reflect. It's all of these things that are, again, so ingrained, right? There are these mental autocompletes with like how they need to behave. And that culture is also... Um, corporate culture. And I say corporate, and I don't just mean businesses. I spend a lot of my career working and consulting with colleges and universities, um, and in a company that consulted with healthcare organizations. And it like doesn't matter the type of organization, they all sort of operate under this corporate mindset here. And and that culture is corporate culture, kill the problem, um, act rather than reflect, just things that go against what we need to do, they'd be more intentional about kind of how we show up for each other and and how we ensure equity.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the coolest things I thought about the book is that it is written in novel form and you talk about how fiction can be useful. I mean, that was your, your dissertation. Why, why do you think it's especially useful in this case as
1: a, as a business book, as a corporate book that, you know, tons of people are going to be reading, uh, for their work? Oh, that's, um, I almost like got chills when you said right now in history, because I think we are at this moment right now in history where there's, there's so much that just needs to get discussed that has been sort of like behind closed doors. And I think it's because we often don't have the vocabulary to discuss it. Um, So a lot of women will say that when they, finished reading my book, like the best comments, the ones that make me feel most proud as an author are when women will say to me, "Um, you gave me the vocabulary for these things I I had experienced at work, but I hadn't realized it. Or like I I swept it down. Like I buried it down within me. Like I knew I was experiencing bias. I knew I wasn't treated well. I I knew things were wrong, um, but I was taught to just ignore it and pretend that things were okay. And it wasn't okay, and, like, this helped me realize I actually have a lot of male readers, too. And part of why I wrote a business book as a novel, and it actually goes back and forth between the perspectives of both male and female characters. Because I want uh, men to find themselves in some of the characters, too. And there are these male characters who want to do the right thing and, in some cases, consider themselves woke, um, but are actually unintentionally doing the wrong things. And men will say to me, too, like, that uh, reading this actually made me feel uncomfortable a little bit. And so I think we are getting to the point where you mentioned divine feminine and part of that, right, is, is being comfortable, being open about emotions and not just, you know, pushing them down. And in order to have these conversations about, you know, what it means to be a woman in the workforce and what it means to have equity in the workforce, we have to actually deal with really uncomfortable feelings. Um I always ask people when I start any kind of employer training, like what are the emotions that come to mind or that you think come to mind when people enter diversity, equity, and inclusion training on any topic, whether it be gender or, or, or race or any form of identity. And, and people will often say, you know, oh, there's lots of emotions, right? Sometimes there's hope, but there's also skepticism because, hey, another one of these is it to actually change anything. There's fear. What if I say the wrong thing? Um, there's fear of reliving past traumas. Like maybe the last time one of these happens, I didn't feel seen or heard. Um, there might be shame, or guilt, there are just like all these emotions that come into it. And instead of dealing with these emotions, we just pretend that they're not there. And so what people do is intellectualize and they start like picking at the little points in the diversity, equity, and inclusion train like, oh, well, you know, that person didn't mean it. Or, oh, well, does that always happen? Oh, is that really a problem? Instead of just like, hey, these are uncomfortable emotions and that's okay. And that's actually what we have to deal with first. And so what I hope my work does, you know, there's footnotes and all of that. But in the end, I one thing I hope it does is help people just get into actually the fact that reading this book is going to be an emotional experience. Um, you might feel angry. You might feel sad. Um, you hopefully will also feel happy with the characters when they do get their wins there's like a small but mighty tradition of business books written as novels. My favorites are, are by Patrick Lencioni. I think part of it is that they're just more fast-paced. Um, they're entertaining. They're, they're like a fun way to get into the research. For this topic in particular, I feel like there are there are different benefits. So one of them is that I actually have almost entirely characters who you can sympathize with and empathize with. They are good characters. They mean to do the right thing. There's no villains in this book. There's no like, you know, raging sexists. <laughs> there's no, um, there's nobody committing assault. There's, there's in, in this book, I wanted to show that these are all people who actually believe in gender equity, want to do right by women. woman, um, but they're unintentionally doing the wrong thing. And I think that's helpful to realize that it's not about villains. It's not about overt sexist. It's about just all these little ways that we can undermine women at work. Both women and men um, and non-binary individuals could unintentionally undermine women at work. Um, so that's one of them. The other goes back to that thousand everyday cuts. That I think in a, a novel, when you see a sympathetic set of cuts, characters and like thing after thing after thing after thing keeps happening to them. It's actually more clear in novel form because you're you're relating to the characters and you're experiencing it along with them. And some of what I wanted to do, and mentioned I have a lot of male readers, is have a book that does some of that emotional labor of explaining like to men what it's like to be a woman in the workplace without the woman having to do it, (laughs) having to say, no, like this is really what it's like. Um, I've had one male reader, gentleman in his 60s, who after he finished reading it, he said to me, like, how do you not all just kill us in our sleep <laughs> if like this is what you experience in the workplace? <laughs> There's um, research by psychologists on how reading fiction can help develop empathy. But the interesting thing about that research, is not just any fiction. So um, not what's called genre fiction, like crime fiction, uh, um, that's really plot focused. And what they say is it actually has to be fiction that gets inside the heads of different characters, um, you know, what like literary critics would call interiority. And so by having characters of different genders of different generations, my hope is that people are able to get into the head of other characters unlike them. So it's sort of like you always, you know, you'll find characters you identify with and it might help you understand your own experience, but then you're also understanding just the experiences of other people too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of one of my favorite quotes about reading. It's like, if you read, you live a thousand lives. If you don't read, you just live one. And that's so true because yeah, that, that getting into the other person's mind, you feel their emotions. You don't have to be told what's going on. You can feel it just from, from reading. Oh, I love that. I love that. So we are getting to the end of time. Um, if there were, if there were summation of, of your work, of, of everything that you've worked so hard to produce What do you really want the listener to walk away with from this talk, from reading your book? What do you want them to remember?
1: I think for women, I would want them to remember it's not just you. Um, It's a broader system and culture. And that so many women go through their lives, again, thinking something's not their fault. I'm sorry, thinking something is their fault and internalizing the bias that they face. We often talk about how women have a confidence gap Um, imposter syndrome, like these are sort of catchy phrases out in the media. And a lot of that's true, you know, I certainly myself have had many points in my career where I needed to be more confident. Um, But what we don't talk about is how that confidence gets whittled away by every single time that we lean in and aren't recognized for it, or where we're expected to take the notes in the meeting or get the coffee, even if that's not their job, or we get the sense that a male peer is getting treated differently than we are getting treated. And so what I want women to realize is that is happening, that is real, that is systemic, that is culture. It's not just you. It's not just that you have a bad boss. You might have a great boss, and yet that still might might be happening. Um, And I think the more that we are aware of that, have the frameworks to discuss it with one another, um, to discuss it across genders, across generations, that's how we can ensure that we're not internalizing and thinking that it's our fault.
0: Mm, I love that. I love that. So Melanie, uh, where can everyone get beyond leaning in and find out more about you online?
1: Thank you. Um, you can get Beyond Leaning In on Amazon or, or wherever books <laughs> are sold um, online. My website is www.melanieho.com uh, or beyondleaningin.com. will get there as well. You can follow me on Instagram at melanieho13 and see all of my comics, the cupcake trap one I described plus dozens of others. And I um, respond to every message I get. So definitely email me, contact me through my website, message me on social media. love to hear from folks.
0: Love it. Melanie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for bearing with all of the technical issues you guys don't even know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And thank you, of course, for this wonderful book that you're putting out into the world that I know is going to positively change so many lives, men and women. So thank you.
1: That was so wonderful talking to you. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast.